Good morning, everyone. Open up your Bibles to John chapter 20, verses 24. And if you're a kiddo, you may be dismissed with Miss Joy to jumpstart. Uh, again, that's John chapter 20, verses 24. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Tyler Boster. Uh, I'm Pastor Dustin's intern, and he's graciously given me this opportunity to preach to you this, this Sunday. Uh, currently, I go to Oregon State University, and I'm planning on getting an economic, or a degree in economics by the end of this uh, year, and hopefully I'll be pursuing a full-time position in ministry afterward. So let's dive into John chapter, John chapter 20, verse 24, looking at the famous story of Doubting Thomas. Hear now the words of the living God. Now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Friends, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof and for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray as you take your seats. Father in heaven, I pray that you would come now. Help me be faithful to your word. Help now the struggling saints who are battling doubt. Help them come and see your glory. I pray this sermon would be Christ magnifying and Christ glorifying. Open our hearts and our minds in Jesus' name, amen. So before we start, before we look at this famous passage in the Bible about doubting Thomas, let's do like a little introspection. Think about for a moment how many doubts you have per day on just ordinary things. You know, it could be when you ask your spouse, hey, honey, did little Tommy, did he take out the trash? And you go, I don't know, I doubt it. He's been playing video games all day. Or, you know, you go to your buddy, like, hey, man, did she return your call yet? But, you know, you, you reply, I don't know, I doubt it. She's way out of my league. <laughs> it could be when you check your kid's teeth because you told them to brush, but you don't really trust them. So you say, come, come, come here, let me see, let me see, and you make them show, show them your teeth. Or lastly, when there's, you know, you're really hungry, but you know there's nothing good in the pantry, but you check anyway. Have you ever done that? You like open it up, close it, and then you open it back up like something new is gonna happen? Like, I do that all the time. But the point is that we are able to quickly and easily confirm our everyday doubt. It's really easy to see that the trash is still full by simply looking in the kitchen 
or to see that she never called you back by simply checking your phone. Overcoming this kind of doubt is easy and normal to everyday life. But what about real doubt? The kind of doubt that makes you doubt your faith. The kind of doubt that paralyzes you spiritually. Well, that's what we're talking about this morning. Struggling with this kind of doubt isn't as simple as peering into the kitchen to make sure that God is real. Or to check your phone to see that Jesus actually rose from the dead. Seasons of doubt can be really discouraging as Christians. These times can linger like smoke during the fire season, which can prevent you from going outside to enjoy God or even to see Jesus. Maybe you're in one right now. Even if you're not a Christian, persistent doubt can keep you from ever coming to Christ. And if that describes you, I completely understand. In my own life, I have wrestled with doubt before, and I'm sure I will wrestle with doubt again and again and again. But I'm also certain that Jesus controls all things in this universe, including my doubt. I know that Jesus is greater than my doubts and controls all things in this universe. And if this man can rise from the dead, he can and will always pull us out of our doubts, just like he did with Thomas. Amidst our seasons of doubt, we can find comfort in the fact that even Thomas, a great apostle, a great believer, a great follower of Christ, struggled with doubt but he subsequently overcame it. If even Thomas can struggle with doubt, God can surely handle our doubt and graciously walk us through it. And so as I studied this passage, I noticed three key things that just kept flashing like right before my eyes. I hope that you come and see them too. I noticed why faith is hard, what faith in Christ really is, and what faith in Christ guarantees. Three points, the three P's, if you will, of faith. The problem of faith, number one. The profession of faith and the promise of faith. Problem, profession, and the promise. And we begin with the problem of faith. And right off the bat, we see Thomas not only doubting in the risen Lord, but also demanding evidence. Look with me at verse 25. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into, his, into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. What's Thomas saying here? Show me the proof. Where's the evidence? I will never believe in something without the cold, hard facts. We hear this all the time from the world, don't we? So it's surprising when we hear something similar out of the mouth of an apostle. It's even more shocking when we hear out of the mouth of Thomas himself. Now, there isn't much in the Bible about Thomas. Interestingly enough, the only three instances Thomas has ever recorded speaking is in the Gospel of John. In John 11, Thomas is bold and he's willing to follow Jesus to the point of death. And then 
in John chapter 14, three, Jesus tells his disciples that he's leaving. And Thomas, he desperately wants to know where Jesus is going so he can follow him. He, he wants to know where and how he can follow, which prompts the very famous words of Jesus, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The third and final time Thomas is recorded speaking in the Bible is in this passage we're going over this morning. So thinking about that, in the whole light uh, and the context of Scripture and of John's Gospel, I mean, it's kind of unfair to bestow the nickname, you know, Doubting Thomas to the Apostle. As we see in two other portions of Scripture, Thomas may have been pessimistic, but nevertheless, he was willing to die with Jesus. And he desperately wanted to know the way to follow his Lord. However, John chapter 20 does stick out. And Thomas was henceforth known for his doubt. But why? Why is Thomas of all people suddenly doubting? You know, we can only make educated guesses, but perhaps the reason that Thomas had such a hard time believing was because he was heartbroken. Have you ever been so upset that you just wanted to be left alone? That interaction with another human being would just be too much on your broken heart? Has doubt or a troubled heart ever paralyzed you from even seeking God so you just ignore him? I think Thomas could be going through something similar after Jesus' crucifixion. Look at verse 24. We see that Thomas wasn't with the disciples the first time Jesus appeared to them. We don't know why exactly, was, exactly Thomas was absent from the first meeting, but we can make some inferences. Maybe Thomas himself felt betrayed by Judas. Maybe Thomas was let down because all this time he thought Jesus was here to knock off the Romans, march in a great army, and establish the messianic kingdom. This was it! Instead, the Romans murdered the man whom Thomas loved. And as far as Thomas was concerned, he was gone forever. A broken heart can cause us to lose faith in a lot of things. We don't just see that from this passage. We know that from experience, don't we? We lose faith in friends and family when they betray us. We lose faith in something when it doesn't go how we expected it. Often, we begin to doubt God when our life gets hard or something terrible happens. You might even say something like this, it isn't supposed to be like this, God. How could you let this happen? Do you even care about me? Are you even listening to my prayers? Are you even there? Now, let's be honest, who isn't in this boat in some capacity right now? In this season of uncertainty, are you doubting God? Are you doubting his purposes? Are there things happening in your life that are in your plan? You know, I think all of us to some degree would say yes. Our sinful flesh and desires constantly cause us to doubt God and his will. So how do we overcome that? How can I go from doubt to profession like Thomas? 
How can we relieve the burden of our suffering hearts and uncertainty in our lives? Friends, the answer is to trust in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son, to fully surrender our lives and place our hope in Christ. Something I find really interesting about this story is after Thomas, after Jesus appeared to Thomas, Jesus essentially tells Thomas, in order to believe in me, it wasn't necessary that you see me. You should have trusted the other disciples, Thomas. What's really cool to think about is before Thomas saw the risen Christ, he had the same exact information about the resurrection that we have today. Eyewitness testimony. The only difference is ours is written down. And for Thomas, it was the words of his fellow disciples. Friends, this passage shows us that we do not need to see the risen Christ's physical body to believe, and that is amazing. All we need to do is trust in the eyewitness testimony of the apostles. It's interesting, all throughout John's gospel, people are doubting who Jesus really is. They're trying to figure out who this strange new rabbi is from the beginning to the end of the book. In John's gospel, do you know who the first man to doubt Jesus was? It was Nathaniel, another disciple of Jesus. I love this story. In the first chapter of John, we see Philip and Nathaniel, two of the earliest apostles, discussing this new rabbi Jesus. Philip says, Nathaniel, we found the Messiah, the one the prophets spoke of. We found him. I've seen him, Nathaniel. I've seen him. Nathaniel instead replies with skepticism. <laughs> Can anything good come out of Nazareth? You're crazy, Philip. What good can come out of Nazareth? And I love this. What does Philip reply to that kind of skepticism and doubt? He says, Nathaniel, come and see. Philip does not rebuke Nathaniel for his honest doubts. He does not say, oh, Nathaniel, you'll never be able to follow the Christ with that kind of doubt. No. Philip invites him to come and see. God's word says in Jude that we should have mercy on those who doubt which is exactly what Philip extends to Nathaniel when he says, oh, Nathaniel, oh, Nathaniel, come and see. So friends, do you have doubts? Well, come and see. If you have a hard time believing that there is an eternal God who created the heavens and the earth, if you have a hard time believing that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, lived like us, ate like us, was tempted like us, who suffered and died a humiliating death on a cross, stretched out naked to bear the wrath of God, who subsequently rose again, triumphing over all death <laughs> and is currently seated at the right hand of the Father with authority over all things. If you doubt that, 
I just invite you to follow the path of Christ, the same path Philip took when he invited Nathaniel, come and see. Come and see. See that he is good. Come and see his glory. Come and see that he loves you and he wants you to experience true life with him. And that he died for you and he rose again so that we might partake in his life by the power of the Holy Spirit and have the righteousness of God imputed onto us. Come and see. Come and see, read the gospels and treat them as they are. Treat them as historical eyewitness testimonies. Oh, come and see the eyewitness testimony concerning the one true God, full of grace and truth. Oh, come and see, live in the gospels that you might drop to your knees and cry out, my Lord and my God. Saying that, while knowing the full impact and weight and the implications of that profession. The problem of faith can be challenging and discouraging for new, old, and not yet believers alike. However, the way to overcome this problem is to come and see the historical testimony that God has borne concerning his own son in the Gospels. Now, I know that doubt can be a problem for many of us, but we cannot live there. We must move from the problem of faith to profession. You know, Dustin once told me, we cannot just sit on a fence because sitting on a fence is excruciating. Have you ever sat on a picket fence or chain link fence? It kind of rubs you raw a little bit. <laughs> sitting on a fence is uncomfortable and excruciating, not only physically, but spiritually. And sitting on the fence with regard to Jesus is not simply a neutral, idle activity. It is rather a dangerous path of destruction if we stay there. And that's our second point this morning, moving from the problem of faith to the profession. This is eternally important, moving from doubt to profession and significantly weighty. Because a life without Jesus is not life at all. Without Jesus, you are dead. And the wrath of God remains on you. So please, if you aren't a believer, come and see. Come and see that what we're doing here is not a game. What we're doing here, we're not just pushing another barrels of moral teachings or a better philosophy for life. That's not what we're doing. What we're doing here and what we want you to become a part of is life itself. A true life, the true life, a life with Christ. After Jesus appears to Thomas, scholars agree that the profession Thomas makes is the greatest, most profound, obvious and clear profession to faith and the deity of Christ in all of the gospels. It's here Thomas finally grasps who Jesus really is and what he's been saying about himself this entire time. Starting in verse 26, we read, eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. 
And then he said to Thomas, put your fingers here and see my hands and put out your hands and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Now there are so many significant and glorious things in just these two verses, like Jesus entering the room while the doors are locked or Jesus offering Thomas the evidence that he demanded. However, I want to focus specifically on Thomas's profession itself and try to unpack it and what it means on our lives today. In this profession, there are three wonderful truths that really grip me. And I really hope that you come and see them and they grip you too. Three things I saw just from the profession is that number one, Jesus is personal. Number two, Jesus is Lord. And number three, Jesus is God. The first thing that stands out to me in the profession Thomas makes is that it's a personal confession. Thomas says, my Lord and my God. This is important to highlight God's relationship to us. Because at the time, the ancient Greek idea of God was an impersonal God. Aristotle deemed this God, you might have known, the unmoved mover. The idea of this God was that, yeah, yeah he created the universe, but then he just kind of ditched the scene, kind of left us to our own devices. It was inconceivable to the Greek philosophers at the time that a God would interact with care and personality to his creation. And people today, just like the Greek philosophers at the time, are not any different. Conjuring up their own idea of God, one of whom they are not accountable to or interact with. Notice, though, how different the God of the Bible is. The God of this universe, the true God. Throughout the Old and New Testament, when people really knew God, knew him in truth, they knew that he is my God and that he's your God. We are able to commune with God, talk to God, enjoy him, be eternally satisfied in him because our God is a personal God who has certain unique traits, characteristics, and emotions. The God of this universe loves truth and justice and beauty. There are things that he dislikes and hates, just like you and every personal being that you've ever known. No, God is not some impersonal power in this universe like gravity. He is personal. And the follower of Christ over and against anything that we may face knows profoundly that God is my God. And he loves me and he showed that by giving himself for me. And God is not just personal. The second thing we see in Thomas's confession is him calling Jesus my Lord. Now, calling Jesus Lord is nothing new at this point in John's gospel, or for any of the gospels for that matter. The disciples and others often refer to Jesus as Lord. However, up until Thomas's profession, the term Lord was simply a high title of respect and reverence. 
disconnected from any sort of deity. It didn't mean that people understood that Jesus was God in human form. Christian, when we call Jesus Lord, we are implicitly committing our lives to obedience. Now, simply calling Jesus Lord will not suffice in and of itself as obedience. We know this from passages like Matthew 7. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. In Luke 6, Jesus shows us through a question what it really means to call him Lord. He asks, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? For the longest time, I was calling Jesus Lord, Lord. I was claiming him as my Lord and my God, but I know now that at the time those were nothing but empty words. I called Jesus my Lord, but I refused to obey him. I refused to submit my life to him. I was hypnotized by this new age evangelical way of thinking which says, you know, all Jesus really wants from you is to have faith, whatever that means. I did not realize that true faith was much deeper. True faith would lead me and cause me to obey. True faith would cause me to listen to the words of Jesus and obey and lose my life that I might have life in Christ. But thanks be to God, just like we sang, by his grace alone, I was purged from that mentality toward the cross. And by his grace alone, I was given a heart of flesh. I was once dead, but now I'm alive in Christ, and that's a miracle. And God is working miracles like that every day in people's lives, bringing them to the full knowledge of the surpassing worth of Christ. And Jesus is truly a miracle worker, amen? Not only is Jesus the Lord over our lives, but he's also God, which is the third aspect we see in Thomas's confession. Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Jesus is God come to save us in human form. In the divine mystery of the Trinity, the triune God of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each are fully God and one God, and yet mysteriously and beautifully three in one. And Jesus is God the Son come to save us from our sins and show us how to live in the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of the Father. Thomas is clear. Jesus is God. When Thomas confesses Jesus as God, Jesus does not rebuke him. Jesus says, Thomas, come and see. See my wounds. Put your fingers in them, Thomas. Come and see. Do not be disbelieving, but believe. Friends, can you make the profession of faith? my Lord and my God. Knowing the full weight, the full implications of the profession. Do you now see that the only solution to the problem of faith is to coming to grips with who Jesus truly is?
This is the most important question in human history. The most important question everyone who ever lives and ever will live will have to answer, will have to give an account for. Who is Jesus? Is he your savior? Is he your Lord? Is he your God? It's only when we, we, when we profess Jesus as our Lord and God, when we begin to truly experience and rest in the promise of faith. So quickly, the last P of our three Ps is the promise of faith. It's a promise of a life with Christ. The promise of God to work in us, for us, to never leave or forsake us which only comes through the blessing of Jesus Christ. Look in verse 29. Jesus says, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. For us, we haven't seen Jesus with our eyes. But Jesus promises us that we will be blessed. And we're blessed with real power. Oh, come and see these promises. Find rest and satisfaction in these promises. The promise of faith justifies you. It makes you righteous before God. The instant you genuinely put your faith in Christ. The promise of faith is God from the very moment of that profession being 100% behind you and for you from the very beginning. It's a gracious promise that says, I know you can't make it on your own, so I've already done it for you. And I promise you to lead you to the end by the helper, the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a power it's a promise of the power to turn from sin and to find what life truly is. After this story, we'd never hear about Thomas in the Bible again. Church history tells us that all of the apostles each went and preached the gospel throughout the whole known world. And the very best historical research confirms that each of the apostles died proclaiming this message. The apostles were never made rich. They were often reviled, beaten, and martyred. Do you think they would do this for a lie? What could possibly empower men to endure such rejection and pain? Why would they die proclaiming this message? It's because they knew and they cleaved to the promise of faith. The promise of God being 100% behind them at all times. So why would Thomas, with all of his doubts, with all of his problems of faith, die telling people about Jesus? Because friends, it's true. Jesus is alive. Jesus really did witness, sorry, Thomas really did witness the risen Christ. Jesus really did enter the locked room. 
And Jesus really does bless those who overcome the problem of faith with real power. And when we do, the power and promises of God propel us into a new life, a life spent with our Lord and our God who loves us through all of our fears and doubts. So as I close, to the Christian in this room who is not doubting, be like Philip. Be like Jesus. Implore, extend an invitation, invite your unbelieving friends and family to come and see. Do you have someone in your mind right now that you wish to extend the invitation to come and see to? I hope you do. And to the one struggling with doubt right now, be like Nathaniel. Be like Thomas and come. Come and see. Friends, that's an invitation to come and see and to bring your doubts before the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this glorious morning. Thank you for the baptism we saw earlier. I pray that you would keep Oaks. Just keep him, Lord. Similarly, I ask that you keep us Keep us from doubt. Keep us from anxiety. Walk us through our doubts. I pray that you would cause us to come and see. Come and see your glory and your power. Jesus, I ask that this would stay with us throughout the week. I pray that this week would be glorifying and Christ magnifying. Jesus, help us be like Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.